from the North Devon coast to the Atlantic shores, from the tropical rainforests to the sunny Azores, from Icelandic wastelands to Australian deserts. This is Cauldron FM, where the magic really happens. Enter Merlin! But beware, do not interrupt his magic! Well, welcome to another edition of Merlin's Magic with me, the Merlin, here on Cauldron FM. And in today's show, which is going to be about an hour in length, we're going to be looking at the work of Catherine Green, the author of uh, the Redcliffe series of novels. And those of you that have listened for some time, you'll possibly be aware that we did interview Catherine for an earlier show called Love Hurts. Well, this one is going to be about Love Kills. Then also we're going to look at familiars and what do they mean and where are they all coming from and all that sort of thing it's a busy show today obviously there'll be some music as well and let's start with a piece that i like to start with which is by celia ferran and it's called drop in
can turn your light on. Well, that was Celia Ferran and a track called Drop In. So, welcome to the second preview of the work by the author Catherine Green. Catherine lives in South Cheshire, which is in the UK, and she fits her writing career around raising her young family. She has also been fascinated by the paranormal world for a long, long time. And when she's not writing about vampires and werewolves and witches, she is usually found ghost hunting and practising her tarot craft. In this part of the show, we're going to hear Emma read a short extract from the new novel in, the, in Catherine's Redcliffe series, which is entitled Love Kills. But before we do that, here is a brief outline of the series, and in particular, Love Kills. Love Kills is set in Cornwall. The Redcliffe series, actually, is set in Cornwall in England. And they follow the adventures of bookshop owner Jessica Stone as she unwittingly falls in love with a vampire. She becomes entangled with his identical twin brother's werewolf pack and then she discovers that she is a witch. In this newly released sequel, Love Kills, Jessica Stone recovers from an horrific werewolf attack and comes to terms with the revelations that her lover, Jack Mason, is a vampire. His brother Danny, the werewolf pack leader, and her best friend Simon is a werewolf. Add to that her discovery that she is a witch and life is suddenly a whole lot harder than it used to be. Jessica has to fight for her own life and Jack's when faced with his jealous vampire master who wants her old lover back. But things are never easy, and a vampire master is not so easy to defeat. So without further ado, I'll hand you over to Emma as she reads the short extract. He put a hand on the back of my head, drawing me close, and touched his soft lips to mine. The kiss started out gentle but quickly escalated and I knew this wasn't Jack. It was his identical twin brother Danny. I pulled away, gasping. Danny, what are you doing? I said breathlessly, my heart pounding. We can't do this. He laughed and spoke in a low, deep voice with a hint of a growl betraying his werewolf lineage. The sound rumbled through my body, setting off shivers and excitement that I tried to express. You know Jack will not mind, Jessica, he said. After all that we've been through, I'm sure you understand. He advanced upon me again, but now I backed away, shivering at the delightful menace in his voice. I was both frightened and excited, and my body was unsure of how to react. Danny, we can't do this, I said firmly. I can't cheat on Jack with his own brother. It's not right. I started to walk past Danny, back out of the darkness towards the, the house, remembering that I was staying with the brothers tonight. Jack would be waiting for me, wondering what took me so long. For a fleeting moment, I wondered why I had chosen to walk through the forest on my way back from work. Usually I would follow the main roads and footpaths, or even drive if I was feeling tired. Danny suddenly grabbed me and pushed me against a large tree trunk, pinning me with his body, leaning in for another kiss. My body reacted to him with a mixture of fear and excitement. He was so much stronger than me, I could not refuse him. I didn't want to refuse him. I wanted him so badly, and it was only my own sense of right and wrong that held me back. But the fear won over and I struggled. Danny, please, I gasped, writhing beneath him. Leave me alone, stop doing this. He just laughed and moved his hands over my body, intensifying the shivers of excitement and desire that shot through me. His voice was husky, deep and sensual, with an Irish lilt that sent thrills down my spine. I know what you want this, Jessica, he growled. I can give you life and heat where my brother cannot. Just relax, enjoy it. I will show you great pleasure. I closed my eyes in anticipation as he moved closer to me, while the voice in my head screamed at me not to do this, that it was wrong, that I could not hurt Jack in this way. I woke with a start, sitting up straight in bed. There was a man asleep beside me, and for one terrifying moment I thought it was Danny, and I stifled a gasp. But of course it was Jack, my boyfriend, my lover. He was lying on his front with his head turned away from me. The duvet had moved down his body when I sat up, and I saw that he was naked as usual. I had already been asleep when he came home. Jack was working late on a police case, and I guess there had been some physical action, because he was literally dead to the world. As a vampire, he should have woken the second I sat up, but he was obviously drained and in need of rest. In fact, his skin looked deathly pale in the moonlight that shone round the edge of the curtains. Usually Jack's skin was tanned like his brother because he used magical abilities to blend in with humans. Now he was white and wasn't breathing, which told me he had lost blood somehow and would need to feed when he woke. I was struck by the importance of his trust in me, that he could willingly fall asleep next to me, knowing that I was human who knew his secret. I could quite easily stake him through the heart and put it into his existence. Well, obviously I couldn't because I'm not a murderer, but the fact remained that Jack was vulnerable in this state. Breathing deeply in and out, a hand on my stomach in a comforting gesture, I thought about my latest crazy vision. Why was I dreaming about Danny? 
Well, that's a long story, but not really a mystery. Danny is Jack's identical twin brother, and I met both men several months ago. I met Jack first while Danny was finishing a police investigation in Scotland. When Danny returned home to Redcliffe, he made no secret of his attraction to me, but he had to have play human for my benefit. Everything changed about a month ago when I discovered the truth about my boyfriend and his brother. I almost died after being attacked by a werewolf who was trying to kill Danny. This werewolf wanted control of Danny's pack, and he used me as a hostage after realising the depth of Danny's feelings for me. The strange thing is that Jack is actually a vampire, while Danny is the werewolf. I was still learning of their history, but basically two separate monsters attacked the brothers, and around the same time during the First World War, they survived their attacks and became very strong metaphysical creatures as a result of their genetic blood blood-sharing rituals that they attempted, and their individual abilities. I was still adjusting to the fact that such creatures could actually exist in modern society, but I think I was getting the hang of it. I let out another deep, soothing breath and raked a hand through my auburn hair, tossing it back over my shoulder and enjoying the comforting weight of it down my back. Looking around the darkened room, I smiled. Everything was normal. It was just a dream. I lay back down in bed, my heart still racing from the intensity of my dream. The room was warm since it was summer, and we didn't really need a duvet. I was using it more as a comforter, something familiar to snuggle into. We were staying at my house tonight, and I had finally given Jack his own key. After I almost died, Jack had saved me with his blood, and now that I was still recovering from my injuries, it seemed silly not to give him a key, really. After all, I couldn't leave him now, I was in too deep. Thinking about my injuries set a twinge of pain through the right side of my neck. That was where Seamus Tully had tried to tear my throat out. The doctors thought I'd been stabbed, and that was my official story to all of the humans who weren't personally involved. I couldn't betray the secret of the Redcliffe werewolf pack, and besides, how could I begin to tell the human doctors that fictional creatures actually exist in our world? They would have admitted me to the psychiatric hospital. I could barely, still barely believe it myself. I'd been bitten, and it was only because Jack had fed me his vampire blood while I was dying that I hadn't turned into a werewolf. Well, that and the fact that apparently I was a witch. That was another revelation that happened in recent months. I was an orphan who had been raised by foster parents from the age of six. Just before I met Jack, my mother had appeared in my dreams and she had warned me about my new friends. She had told me that she was a witch and that subsequently I was, but that my powers had lain dormant all these years because there had been no one to guide me and no need for me to use them. I thought I was going crazy, but gradually, as my life descended into chaos with vampires and werewolves appearing everywhere, it actually began to seem like a good thing. At least I wasn't completely helpless amongst all of these supernatural creatures. Actually, it seemed that I was belong with them, but I was still learning. I wasn't ready to give up on my life as a human yet. Anyway, my mother had appeared in several dreams and had given the proof I needed that she was real and not just a figment of my imagination. She uses some form of metaphysical energy to communicate with me, and now that I'm healing from my injuries, she's slowly starting to reappear in my dreams. Actually, when I have a night of sleep without dreaming, it seems strange. But this dream with Danny and me almost having sex together was new and it frightened me. Knowing that my dreams often reflect a version of reality, I couldn't be sure that Danny wasn't already aware or that he hadn't engineered it in some way. He had already made it clear to me about his feelings and Jack also knew. After I discovered their secret, Danny seemed to think he shouldn't hold back and was bombarding me with non-human actions and behaviours. I was doing my best to adjust and get used to these strange creatures when just happened to be my friends. I was tired and it was very early in the morning and I needed to go back to sleep. I couldn't think about what this dream meant during the day. I carefully turned my head enough to see the beside clock. Careful not to stretch the thick scar on my neck. It felt like a collar, almost choking me sometimes. But it was healing and I was getting used to it. The deep emotional scars would take longer to soothe, but I hadn't the energy to focus on those right now. The time was 3.24. I didn't need to get up and work until 7.30 so I could get back to sleep. But it was never that easy. My body was tired, but my mind had woken up. Jack never stirred. I could vaguely see that his clothes were strewn across the floor near the bedroom door, and I wondered if he carried a gun tonight. I'd be careful not to move his clothes if I was up before him. The last thing I wanted was another vampire attack. The first time I discovered Jack's gun hidden in his pocket, he leapt out of bed and almost strangled me before he came to his senses. I shivered violently at the memory, and a wave of nausea washed over me. Breathing deeply once again, I forced the panic out of my mind. My body slowly calmed down again. I looked at Jack and where he lay beside me. He was perfectly still since his heart didn't beat. Apparently, when I thought he was human, he had simulated it beating for my benefit. Now he didn't need to waste the energy. His skin was cold to the touch and he was pale. I could see a faint translucent glow to his skin in the darkness. My bedroom wasn't completely dark because there were streetlights at the back of the terrace and they sent an orange glow around the edges of the curtains. 
I tentatively reached out and touched his cold skin with my fingertips. I imagined he felt like a marble. Although they had never been really close to a sculpture like that kind before, Jack was just so beautiful that he had to resemble something of mystical splendour. Suddenly I felt a wave of tiredness wash over me, and I welcomed it. I fell back to sleep, dreamless this time, and I didn't wake until my alarm went off later that morning. But you Lord keep killing me so Well, thank you, Emma. That track that you've just listened to there, following the uh, reading of um, the first extract from Love Kills, was a track by Ardeth Bay, and the track was called The Lord Keeps Killing Me. So let's move on now to the next thing, which is about familiars. Basically, what happened was I was asked the other day by a young witch if I could give her any pointers on the subject of familiars. And having not really covered this topic before in any of my broadcasts, I thought it would be a useful exercise to research what other people have to say on the subject. So the next section is compiled from both my research and my own experience. In legend, a familiar or familiar spirit is a supernatural being that helps and supports a witch or a magician. Traditionally, it is an animal, but some are said to be humanoid. Familiars often have special powers of their own. When witchcraft is portrayed as a type of communication or alliance with evil forces in order to gain magical powers, this may be considered a type of demon. 
The stereotypical familiar in Western culture is the black cat. Because black cats are strongly associated with witchcraft, there are a number of superstitions regarding them. One crossing a person's path is said to be a portent of doom. A familiar may be an animal. In fact, it could be any animal. But it does take some common forms. And those are a dog, an owl and a toad. In the days of widespread persecution of witches, every witch was believed to have a familiar, and close animal companions were sometimes considered proof that a person was a witch. In addition to animals, humanoid creatures were believed to serve in this role. Sometimes they were said to look like regular people, and others they said they were said to be odd in appearance, having some deformity or resembling stereotypical images of demons. Legends of this period also often attribute the habit of drinking blood to familiars. They were considered at least as dangerous as witches, as they were thought to be supernatural beings that looked like normal animals and could spy or wreak havoc for their witch without being easily detected. While Christians traditionally interpret familiars as demons, to Wiccans and Neo-Pagans they are more like the Christian concept of a guardian angel. A witch's familiar can be his or her closest companion, offering moral support, special knowledge and or physical healing. Wiccans may seek one through meditation or divination, but most do not believe that they can be summoned, contrary to traditional Western legend regarding witches and black magic. Author Philip Pullman offers an interesting take on the idea in his Dark Materials trilogy in which every human has a demon in animal form that has parallels to various cultural interpretations of the soul. So I'd like to say thank you to wisegeek.org for that interpretation of familiars. And then I did a bit more research and I found this little piece. We also benefit from animal spirit guides. Animal spirits that guide us in our everyday lives. An animal spirit guide can be anything from a lizard to a bear. Remember that when they appear to us, they are trying to help us. It may also help to invest in a book that covers this topic so that you are familiar with what each animal spirit represents. And Patty Wigington writes, In some traditions of modern Wicca and paganism, the concept of an animal familiar is incorporated into practice. Today, a familiar is often defined as an animal with whom we have a magical connection. But in truth, the concept is a bit more complex than this. During the days of the European witch hunts, familiars were said to be given to witches by the devil, according to Rosemary Gillies' Encyclopedia of Witches and Witchcraft. They were, in essence, small demons which could be sent out to do a witch's bidding. Although cats, especially black ones, were the favoured vessel for such a demon to inhabit, Dogs, toads and other small animals were sometimes used. In some Scandinavian countries, familiars were associated with spirits of the land and nature. Fairies, dwarves and other elemental beings were believed to inhabit the physical bodies of animals. Once the Christian church came along, this practice went underground because any spirit other than an angel must be a demon. During the witch hunt era, Many domestic animals were killed because of their association with known witches and heretics. During the Salem witch trials, there is little account of the practice of animal familiars, although one man was charged with encouraging a dog to attack by way of magical means. The dog, interestingly enough, was tried, convicted and hanged. Do you believe that? In shamanistic practices, the animal familiar is not a physical being at all, but a thought form of a spiritual entity. It often travels astrally, or serves as a magical guardian against those who might try to physically or psychically attack the shaman. Today, many Wiccans and pagans have an animal companion that they consider their familiar, and most people no longer believe that these are spirits or demons inhabiting an animal. Instead, they have an emotional and physical and psychic bond with the cat, dog or whatever, who is attuned to the powers of its human partner. Finding a familiar. 
Not everyone has, needs, or even wants a familiar. If you have an animal companion as a pet, such as a cat or a dog, try working on strengthening your psychic connection with that animal. Books, such as Ted Andrews' Animal Speak, contain some excellent pointers on how to do this. If an animal has appeared in your life unexpectedly, such as a stray cat that appears regularly, for instance, it's possible that it may have been drawn to you psychically. However, be sure to rule out mundane reasons for its appearance first. If you're leaving out food for local feral cats, that's a far more logical explanation. Likewise, if you see a sudden influx of birds, consider the season. Is the ground thawing making food more readily available? If you'd like to draw a familiar to you, some traditions believe you can do this by meditation. Find a quiet place to sit undisturbed and allow your mind to wander. As you journey, you may encounter various people or objects. Focus your intent on meeting an animal companion and see if you come into any contact with any. In addition to familiars, some people do magical work with what's called a power animal or a spirit animal. A power animal is a spiritual guardian that some people connect with. However, much like other spiritual entities, there's no rule or guideline that says you must have one. If you happen to connect with an animal entity while meditating or performing astral travel, then that may be your power animal or it may just be curious about what you're up to. In my own case, I have had several familiars, most of whom have been cats, the latest of which is a beautiful, loving tabby called Misty. However, I'm often of the opinion that they are simply different incarnations of the same spirit. And on that thought, I'm going to break for another piece of music. And when we return, I'm going to look at some of the um, historical facts about witchcraft, and in particular about the time of the witch trials in the 1600s. And that's the third and final part of the show. We'll break for another piece of music now and some messages, and I'll see you on the other side of those. Back in a minute. I'm Emma, and I like nothing more than sitting down and listening to Colgen FM. Hey, Raven Moonshadow here, dropping in to let each of you know you can now find me on Facebook. Catch up with the latest goings-on of Raven, read reviews I've posted, listen to previously aired shows, get links to books, music, and general information, find items I've handcrafted, or even just drop me a note. So you can have the time, drop by my page, give it a like. To find me, just log on to www.facebook.com slash ravenmoonshadow.hps. Blessed be. Hi, I'm the Merlin. And I would like to invite you to join me on one of my two shows on Cauldron FM, The Sound of Magic. The first one being Merlin's Magic, which features an eclectic mix of items that I pick up on my travels around this planet. The second is the new music show. The clue there is in the title. It's all about new music. Music by bands that are unsigned, artists that are unsigned, all of whom have given me their permission to feature them. Sometimes we'll cover a live gig, so generally there's a fantastic mix there of new material, different styles, different genres. Hopefully most of them have a pagan influence, but that isn't to say that that is the limiting factor. There we have it. Merlin's Magic and the New Music Show, both presented by me, yours truly, The Merlin. Yes. 
Hi again and welcome back to this, what I think is going to be the final part of this show, which basically is talking about uh, familiars. And this is the historical section about familiars. In the year 1645, Matthew Hopkins, the self-proclaimed Witchfinder General, initiated a brutal campaign against witches in Essex, England. He used a relatively simple criteria for evaluating a suspected witch. If the suspect possessed a familiar spirit, which usually took the form of a domestic animal, she or he was probably a witch. Convicting someone as a witch on these grounds was nothing new. Hopkins' campaign marked the culmination of a century of English witch trials that actively identified suspected witches with animal familiars. Familiars played a central role in certain English witch trials between 1550 and 1650, in that they provided the main body of evidence. Therefore, it becomes essential to understand what was meant by a familiar and analyse the role that it played in the life of a witch in terms of these trials. Familiars were, first and foremost, spirits. These spirits usually had their own names, communicated to human beings through speech, and sometimes displayed distinct personalities and motives. Most of these spirits took on the physical form of a domestic animal and established a relationship with a particular person, often a woman with evil intentions. They helped the witch carry out maleficia. In this respect, the trial records, or the trial records even, depict them as having incredible unearthly powers. The familiar was by no means a subservient, faithful helper who followed the witch's every command. The relationship between the familiar and the witch is better characterised as give and take. Some familiars played the role of little devils in that they requested a pact, often satanic in nature, before they would perform any services for the witch. Furthermore, almost all of them craved nourishment in the form of human blood. See the link back to Catherine Green. They would attach themselves to some part of the witch's body and suck blood out of her, leaving a bruise that witch hunters called the witch's mark. The familiars and witch's mark acted as strong evidence in the many trials. Matthew Hopkins later exploited these forms of evidence in his massive witch-finding campaign in the middle of the 17th century. Many people were executed on the basic grounds that they kept animals or had a strange mark on their body. Could you imagine that happening today? Good grief, about half the English population would be condemned as being witches. As mentioned before, this fact is amazing and it's, it's very, very shallow. Very few studies of European or English witchcraft treats the, treats the subject with more than a couple of paragraphs. The picture of English witch beliefs will remain incomplete until familiars are fully understood. What means did a witch employ to acquire her familiar? The records show two possible answers to this question. Either she inherited the animal from another witch, or the animal approached the witch on its own. None of the records examined indicate that the familiar was conjured or summoned by the witch herself. In the Chelmsford trial of 1556, a white spotted cat by the name of Satan, which was an older spelling of Satan, was passed down from witch to witch. Twelve-year-old Elizabeth Francis received the cat from her grandmother and later gave it away to Agnes Waterhouse. Marjorie Salmon, in the trial at St. Osyth in 1582, also inherited her familiars. Marjorie confessed that she had in truth these two imps given to her by her mother. Her mother had said if she did not like to keep them old, to keep them, old Joan Pesci would be glad of them. Marjorie's mother obviously felt like she had to pass them on to somebody. She couldn't just get rid of them. As the familiars were her primary vehicle for Maleficia, transfer of familiars meant transfer of witchcraft power. This inheritance system fits in well with the common belief that witchcraft practices generally stayed in a particular family and were handed down from generation to generation. Most of the time, the familiar itself initiated the contract, contact with the witch. It would choose a person to attach itself to, and that person rarely had any choice but to keep it. In the Chelmsford trial, 
Sathan approached Joan Waterhouse, the daughter of Agnes Waterhouse, and offered his services. All of the familiars in the trial of the Lancaster witches in 1612 also appeared in front of the person of their choosing. A spirit called Ball appeared to Elizabeth Device in the form of a brown dog, and later approached her son, James Device. Practically all familiars possessed names. However, for the most part, the records do not suggest that their names were bestowed upon them by witches. They already had names and usually shared them with the witches. A black dog in the Lancaster trial, who appeared before James Device, then ever after bid this examinate to call it Dandy. All of the spirits in the trial at Warboys in 1593 volunteered their names as well. Finally, when Mother Waterhouse happened upon the cat in the Chelmsford trial, he wild or willed her to call him Satan. Thus the names of the familiars for the most part were not given by the witches. Matthew Hopkins, in describing some of the familiars he had come across, made the remark that no mortal could invent their names. The fact that animal familiars already had their own names, a seemingly strange phenomenon, actually fits well into the general scope of magical beliefs in this time period. These animals were commonly perceived as spirits, who just took the form of animals. Manuals and treaties on the conjuration of spirits such as the Key of Solomon elaborate the whole hierarchy of angels and demons, each with their own names and attributes. People commonly believe that all spirits possess names, and for this reason it makes sense that familiars, who were essentially spirits, also had their own names. As mentioned previously, the forms that familiars took varied widely. They commonly assumed the form of some kind of domestic animal, usually a cat or a dog. Other possibilities included toads, hares, lambs, birds and cocks. To further complicate the issue, some spirits took on many different forms. For example, Satan originally took the form of a cat, but was also seen as a toad and a dog. A spirit by the name of Tib in the Lancaster trial appeared first as a little boy, then as a brown dog, and finally as a cat or a hare. Since these familiars were half animal, half demon, to use Macfarlane's phrase, many witnesses indicated that they could tell when something was wrong with a normal animal. In the Warboys trial, a witness was questioned about a chicken suspected of being familiar. Being a familiar, should I say, not being familiar. That puts a totally different slant on things. Being asked whether it was a natural chicken, she saith it was not. She knoweth it was no natural chicken. Familiars were sometimes portrayed as creatures who did not actually exist, although child witnesses often contributed to this notion. A nine-year-old child testified against Alice Hunt. The chief witness against her was her little daughter-in-law, Phoebe, of the age of eight or thereabouts, who deposed to her having two little things like horses. These horses, named Jack and Robin, were so tiny that Alice Hunt apparently kept them in a pot by her bed. In the same trial, Agnes Dowsing deposed that against Agnes Heard. Then spoke Agnes Dowsing, aged seven years, who asked if her mother had imps, said yes. In one box she had six avices, or blackbirds, and in another box six like cows as big as rats. In the Chelmsford trial, Joan Waterhouse became angry that her neighbour, Agnes Brown, would not share any cake with her. Agnes Brown, aged 12, testified that she later saw a thing like a black dog with a face like an ape, a short tail, a chain, and a silver whistle to her thinking about his neck, and a pair of horns on his head. Thus, when young children acted as witnesses, it appears that they let their active imaginations do the talking. This is not to say that the children were not believed. After Phoebe's testimony against Alice Hunt, Phoebe took the trial officials to the house and showed them the place where her mother kept the little horses. Of course they were not there. But Brian Darcy, who presided over the trial, convicted her anyway. Once the familiar established itself with the witch, it carried out various functions. 
the trial records show, should I say, that familiars inflicted injury or killed both people and animals. When Satan was Elizabeth Francis, or with, was with Elizabeth Francis, he killed a man who refused to marry her. Later, when he was with Mother Waterhouse, he killed three of her neighbours' hogs. In the St. Osseth trial, Ursley Kemp actually assigned specific roles to her familiars. And the quote here is, Bursting out with weeping and falling on her knees, she said, Yes, she had the four imps her son had told of, and that two of them, Titty, a grey cat, and Jack, a black cat, were he's whose office was to punish and kill unto death, and two, Tiffin, a white lamb, and Piggin, a black toad, were she's who punished with lameness and bodily harm and they destroyed goods and cattle. As noted in the above quotation, Kemp had her male familiars commit the murders, while the female familiars did comparatively lighter work. The animals also showed the capacity to damage property. Alice Manfield's familiar in the St. Osseth trial, four black cats, established themselves as noteworthy vandals. Among other things, they allegedly burned down a barn that contained a great supply of corn. The fact that these witchcraft trials were brought about in response to a slain animal, a sickened person, or destroyed property was nothing new. However, in these trials, the witch was often not accused of doing the bewitching herself. She was accused of having an animal or spirit who did the bewitching for her. The witch, angry at a particular individual, invoked her familiar to carry out her maleficia. This notion contains an interesting implication. Witches did not possess any power themselves, whether inherent or given to them by the devil. They had evil motives, but needed a vehicle, a familiar, to carry them out. This theory, however, does not hold true for all witches who possessed familiars in the trials I examined. Some did most of the bewitching themselves, showing that they had their own power. Ursula Kemp, the owner of four familiars, displayed that she also had magical powers. Ursula came in unbidden, turned down the bedclothes and took her victim by the arm, when immediately she gasped and died. Haunting or generally harassing people provided another frequent activity for familiars. As mentioned before, the most common way that a witch acquired her familiar was by the animal approaching her. Some simply did not want the thing and tried to stay away from it as much as possible. In the St. Osseth trial, a spirit called Suckin, a black dog, pestered Elizabeth Bennet. And the quote goes, Suckin came unto her and took her by the coat and held her so that she could not go forwards nor removed by the space of two hours, asking her if she would go with it. Elizabeth refused him and eventually he went away. But the next day, Suckin came to her house and tried to kill her by pushing her into the oven. Sometimes a witch would send her familiar out to haunt others. The Warboys trial best demonstrates this tendency. A family of three, the Samuels, was charged with bewitching another family in the village, the Throckmortons. The primary victims of the alleged witchcraft were the five Throckmorton children, who were continually pestered by spirits. The haunting spirits especially loved Joan Throckmorton, so much, in fact, that they actually fought with one another in competition for her attentions. Also, the dog who scared young Agnes Brown in Chelmsford still haunted her when the trial record was written. The haunting familiars frequently communicated through speech, jeering or threatening their victims. The trial records for Chelmsford, Warboys and Lancaster all provide actual dialogues between people and familiars. Speech is less prevalent in the St. Osseth trial. Only two of the numerous animals in the trial showed the ability to talk. The familiar's speech sometimes proved helpful to the witches. Most of the familiars in the Lancaster trial gave specific advice on enchantments. The following formula came up several times in this trial. A black dog bad this examinate, James Device, make a picture of clay, 
like unto the said mistress Townley, and that this examinate, with the help of his spirit, who then ever after bid this examinate call it dandy, would kill or destroy the said mistress Townley. The clay model, once dry, was to be pricked and prodded to cause pain in different areas of the victim's body. In the trial at St. Osseth, Ursley Kemp's lamb, Tiffin, actually played a role as an indirect witness. Accused witches, it will be remembered, were often allowed to testify against one another. Ursley Kemp gave the following informed testimony. She, Ursley, said that Mother Bennett had two imps, and that Hunt's wife had a spirit too. For one evening she, Tiffin, peeped in at her window when she, Ursley, was from home, and saw it look out from a potchard from under a bundle of cloth, and that it had a brown nose like a ferret. And Ursley said that her spirit, Tiffin, informed her of all these things. Kemp's charges against Elizabeth Bennett and Alice Hunt were based on information from Tiffin, a white lamb. Brian Darcy investigated Bennett and Hunt and convicted them of witchcraft, along with Ursley Kemp. Could it be that the realm of credible witnesses was expanded even beyond young children and confessed witches in this trial? This appears to be the case. To summarise, witches acquired their familiar through an inheritance or through the familiar approaching the witch on its own. Familiars were mainly spirits who incarnated themselves into common domestic animals who committed maleficia for the witch. This general description of familiar holds true in most cases with regards to the four English witch trials I have studied. The next question to be answered is one of great importance. What were the dynamics of the relationship between the witch and her familiar? This issue has been confused and oversimplified by historians. Keith Thomas says that the, the familiar performed useful magical services for his mistress. This gives the impression that it was a servile creature who did what the witch asked of it to. The majority of the trial records indicate that this notion is largely untrue. It is difficult to tell who was really the one in charge. The familiars in the Lancaster trial rarely stayed with a witch. They would appear and disappear at will, and it was up to them when they visited the witch. A passage in the St. Osseth trial shows that some were not so easy to control. Joan Pesci apparently said that following to her imps, Are you so saucy? Are ye so bold? You were not best to be so bold with me. For if you will not be ruled, you shall have Simmons sores. Yea, said the said Joan, I perceive I do give you an inch, you take it, you will take an L, which is all a bit Middle Englishy. The familiars often did perform services for the witches, but the relationship was not one between mistress and service, as Thomas suggests. It was a give-and-take relationship in which each of the parties had something to gain. The familiar, at the very least, required some form of nourishment, usually blood. In some trials, however, it demanded some kind of pact or promise from the witch. The fact that neither the familiar nor the witch completely controlled entire relationships leads to an interesting disruption of English societal views in the early modern period. In an ordained society, Susan Dwyer Amerson makes the argument that the English family structure, in combination with gender and class inequality, created a hierarchical society. In the village, hundred and county, as well as the nation, those of higher status were to govern and care for their inferiors and in return receive obedience and respect from the governed. That's a bit dictatorial, don't you think? In any given relationship between two people, Amerson held that one person, by virtue of their gender or rank, necessarily held a higher position than the other and consequently governed the other. For example, men generally dominated their relationship with women. However, the relationship between the witch, usually a woman, and the familiar, a spirit in the form of an animal, 
could not easily be incorporated into this hierarchical system. The problem necessarily arises from the dual nature of the familiar. Women generally had the responsibility of caring for and controlling domestic animals in English villages. But the fact that the familiar was also a spirit disrupted the hierarchy. The spirit portion of the familiar tended to dominate the woman by demanding her body and soul, even though she saw it as an animal and attempted to control it as she normally would expect to do. Thus the dual nature of the familiar helps explain the unusual give-and-take character of the relationship between a familiar and a witch. So that really is the, the end of that long and lengthy section on familiars. I know that there's been a few mistakes in there which will be ironed out as we go. Um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to that. I hope you found it interesting. As I said before, you'll probably spot the link between the Catherine Green vampire werewolf story and the connection, albeit maybe tenuous, with familiars. So I would like to say thank you ever so much to Catherine for allowing us to read from Love Kills. To Emma for performing such a wonderful job of the reading, as usual. Thank you very much, Emma. To all the music that is provided, I would like to say thank you to the artists for allowing us graciously to use their material on these shows. Uh, We don't go round and just pull music from the web. Every single track that we play in one way, shape or form is either donated to us by the artist or with their written permission. I'd like to thank you for listening. I know I've done a lot of talking today, but I hope you've found it useful. If you want to get in touch with Cauldron FM, if you wanted to sponsor a show, because we're always looking for show sponsors, if you want to have a public announcement made or an advert made for you, then um, all you've got to do is drop us an email. You can email us at cauldronfm at mail.com. You can also go onto Twitter and contact us via Twitter again as Cauldron FM and if you go on to Facebook we have a presence on Facebook as guess what Cauldron FM so we're fast approaching Yule and there will or I have plans shall we say that to create another show for you around about Yule and then we'll sort of be recording our reviews of 2012 before we get into uh, 2013 all being well i mean it may be that they come in as, as part of the first being the first show of 2013 i don't know yet i would like to publicly say thank you very much to all my colleagues here at cauldron fm in particular raven cora and pete for my colleagues within the Moonshadow media group which includes sarah and paul and i not forgetting our studio engineer ben And without Ben, we certainly wouldn't be talking to you as we are now. All that we want is Ben to actually come up with the bits now that actually make it so that we can talk to you live rather than recordedly. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Thank you very much for listening. If, say, if you want to pick us up and give us a bit of praise, feel free. We're always glad to receive praise. And if you've got anything else to say about the shows or anything like that, anything you want us to talk about, then all you've got to do is drop us a line, coldenfm at mail.com. I'm the Merlin, and I'd love to say thank you very, very much for listening, and I hope you've had a great time listening to this show, and I wish you love, light, and blessed be. Bye now.
Colden FM is a Moonshadow Media production. Yes, one take! Ha <laughs> ha!